the very first time that I invested in a syndication. I wanted to do this myself. Um, before we started Sugar House, I want to learn about this industry. So my wife and I invested in a deal about an hour and a half south of Houston down there on the on the coast. And we learned everything not to do. It went horribly wrong. It was a deep turnaround project, some new construction, permitting issues, bad operations. You know, Hurricane Harvey, I think it was, that wiped that one out. So we had to deal with the insurance. What I took away from that is that's, I don't ever want to play in that deep turnaround, deep value add, buy in a war zone type of investment again. So our profile is we are buying performing assets. You found the Real Estate Law Podcast. Because real estate is more than just pretty pictures and law goes well beyond the paperwork and courtroom arguments. If you're a real estate professional or looking to build real estate expertise, then welcome to the conversation and discover more at realestatelawpodcast.com. Hello, hello, hello. It's the Real Estate Law Podcast. Jason Muth here with Rory Gill, attorney, real estate broker. Rory, we're going to be talking about investments today, a little bit of passive income, some syndications, some things to have to do with people that are looking for other places to put their money that maybe might not be so active. We do have a guest on that's done a little bit of everything in his career, you know, owning long-term rentals, short-term rentals, working on syndication deals, has been in commercial real estate for over 20 years, has had a portfolio himself. I'd love to learn more about the decisions that he's made and why he's taken the route that he has now. And Rory, I want to find out about what is going on with the environment that we're in right now. You know, I know it's not going to be like this forever, um, but it's going to be like this for a little while. And, you know, how can people make money in this world? Yeah, there's always, you know, every market's a little bit different and there are always opportunities hidden um, and the struggles in each and every market. So I'm intrigued to learn some more. And as I look up and see you, Jason, at one of the properties doing spring maintenance yourself, I'm interested to hear about some maybe more passive ways somebody can get involved in real estate investing. Yeah, I am too, especially because we just had a bird fly in the house and I just spent 20 minutes trying to get it out. I think it's out, but you know. Hey, Brad, that's the kind of stuff that we're all working with as real estate investors, right? I love it, right? I mean, we get getting our hands dirty, trying to make a buck here and there. But yeah, do, yeah. Whatever we have to do. So, so this is Brad Shepard. He's the managing partner with Sugar House Investments, and Brad comes to us originally from Utah. Uh, spent some time in Austin, and now lives in the lovely town of Boise, Idaho. Welcome, Brad. Hey, thanks a lot, Jason and Roy. Appreciate it. I'm uh, excited to be here. Yeah, yeah. No, we're excited to have you. We love hearing uh, people's stories and how they got to where they are. Today, you know, sharing their expertise that might be able to help out some of the people that are listening right now who either have money to park or a pathway they want to carve or a job they want to leave, or maybe they just have too many active investments and they're probably saying, I think the next one I want to do is going to be a little bit easier and a little more passive. So, Brad, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, about Sugar House Investments and and how you started the company or your the managing partner of the company. And, you know, we, that's a good starting point there. All right, sure. I'll I'll stay high level, and if anything sounds interesting, we can dive deeper wherever you guys want to jump in. But yeah, you know, somewhere along the in back in the high school days, I knew I wanted to be rich. I didn't know exactly how to do that, but you know, the goal was I want to see my name in the Wall Street Journal or 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 Business Week. And somewhere later on, you know, a few years into college, I got the idea that oh, real estate—that's the way to do it. That's you know, the real estate makes a, a whole lot of millionaires. I want to go big. And so I did a finance degree with the uh, intent to go towards commercial real estate. And that's what I did my internship in during my the summer between junior and uh, senior year. 
in, in terms of the company up in Seattle that was wheeling and dealing in shopping malls and large skyscrapers. And I just, I loved it. I had a blast. You know, my, my assignment for the summer was, you know, a spreadsheet. <laughs> I got, I got a few lines on a spreadsheet. So I wasn't obviously critical to their success, but I, I loved being around it. Came back from that senior year of high school, a college took me a different route and I ended up staying on board with this pretty small company for about nine years. But we grew that to a, to a pretty successful organization, actually able to exit that with a, with a very, you know, a decent chunk of change in my pocket. But as that company grew, we were able to shift a couple of times with some various partnerships that freed up our time. And so that allowed me to take that company into a more of a real estate function as well. We were vacation rentals before there was such a thing as Airbnb in these cool little historic towns. It was, you know, a padlock on the door. We'd give the guests the, the code. We would trust them. They would go in there, have their stay, and then, you know, do a load of laundry on their way out. And then it'd be ready for the next guest when they showed up. So it was fun. We had a good time. And one of the properties we had, we bought a, a lot in a really cool area. We built a, a hotel and a store on on that property. We got to raise raise funds from investors on that one. So yeah, anyway, had a great time with that. We moved to Austin early two thousand early two thousand tens, and there I started doing some more of the single family stuff, fixing and flipping, uh, single family rentals, Airbnbs. Learned a lot, had a good time, but finally realized that's not where I wanted to play. I didn't enjoy it, and finally the light bulbs went off for me. Oh yeah, commercial. Go back to commercial, and that's what led me to starting Sugar House originally thinking that I would be an operator and a syndicator in this space. But along the way, I discovered the opportunity to partner with operators who already had the broker relationships, who already had the teams and the systems. And I could help them get their deals across, you know, across the finish line by bringing dollars into those deals. And that's what Sugar House does today is bring those passive investors into these, uh, these commercial syndications. And um, yeah, we've been doing that for the last six years and it's been a, a fun ride. So tell us like how that started though, meaning when you decided that you were going to bring dollars to these deals, like were you, are you out there fundraising? Like, are you actually shaking hands with potential investors, going to real estate meetups, reaching out to people on LinkedIn or what have you, people that might have money to invest and then you get commitments and then you pull that together and then bring it to a larger deal. Is that, is that how that works? Yes. To, yes. To all of the above. And so what, you know, when, when I first learned of that opportunity, you know, and it came through, I was reaching out to the brokers and getting on their buyers list and telling them what I wanted to do. And through that, I got connected to a, to some folks there in Austin who were partnered with some pretty well, now well-known operators and, and, and bringing dollars to them. And I, I met up with those folks. They explained what they were doing. And I thought, well, hey, rather than go compete with those operators, I can work alongside them. I know people with money. <laughs> and so those were both people, you know, groups that I had met over my career. Those are people who helped fund my fix and flips. We were doing burrs and those, you know, hard money loans. And so I knew people with, with money who I thought might be interested in this, in this commercial syndication world. I put myself out there on LinkedIn. I put myself out there on Twitter. Um, I try to, you know, build up my website and my email list. And so that's the group that I'm marketing to when I have a deal, one, one of our operator, operators deals that needs funds. I'm going out to my email list at this point to let my investor pool know of the opportunity. They raise their hands, who's interested, and then we go from there. You know, not talking about, the, the legal aspect of it at all. But, you know, any part of real estate is really a relationship business. I'm just curious how you um, build and maintain relationships with all these prospective investors, earn their trust, um, and earn the repeat business. There's certainly a legal element to that because of the types of deals and the, the, the securities laws that go around there. But yeah, it is, you know, you know, I started with. They knew I have been involved in real estate for years, since the early 2000s. 
And so it was easy to go to them and saying, hey, you know, I've kind of upped my game. I'm coming up to this level now. We're talking about sophisticated operations, professional property management companies, and I'm excited about this. Do you want to come along with me? And so it was that type of a, you know, a conversation with those, you know, the people that I had known for a while. Now it's fun to go talk to people who I don't know very well. We've never met in person. It's been Zoom calls or phone calls, and they simply heard about me on a podcast. They saw me on Twitter. They've joined my email list. I sent out an email blast saying, hey, we've got this deal. Are you interested? And I'm getting a response back from somebody. I have to look and say, who is that? (laughs) So then it's jumping on the phone call, make sure I understand their situation, their background, talk about my battle wounds, show them my scars, the lessons learned along the way. Um, I'm never trying to sell. If I, if I, and I tell my, my investor pool, if I, if, if it sounds like I'm selling, you can fire me cause I'm doing it the wrong way, but I do try to be really authentic with them in what we're looking to do, what the expectations are. I have now gone the licensed broker dealer route. So I have, you know, you know, limitations on what I can say as far as projected returns have to caveat the heck out of everything. So I do try to be very level headed in, in, in setting the expectations with these potential investors. And that served me well as far as being able to set the expectations low, exceed them with the actual returns, and then we get there. You know, they get they get excited to want to play again. I think a lot of us have been asked to be on people's deal lists, and we see it in Facebook groups all the time. Like, you know, email or you know, put your email down below, and you'll get deals like this for me. What's the borderline or what's the line between spamming somebody and sending out good deals? Like the people that are asking for my email address for their deal list, are they just trying to build up their lists just for the sake of building their list up? Or, you know, how how does somebody decipher between those two? Yeah, that's a great question. So I've never gone the, you know, Facebook ads route or, hey, give me your email list. I wanted to be, this to be very organic. I love it when people tell me, hey, I heard about you on that pod. I heard you on, on that podcast resonated with me, would love to learn more. And they're coming to me asking for information. I do love to talk about real estate. I get excited. I start talking fast because I did, you know, because it is exciting for me. I love educating people about these opportunities. You know, a professional, a busy professional who's got a thousand other things on their shoulders, loves the idea of real estate, doesn't want to get their hands dirty with the, with managing tenants, managing contractors, et cetera. And I tell them, well, you know, here's how you can get those really attractive returns and the benefits without having to deal with the uh, day-to-day stuff. It's really fun to see these light bulbs go off. And so as far as, you know, what I'm looking to do, I don't need or want thousands and thousands of people on my email list. It's hundreds. I, I you know, we, we have some, a lot of repeat investors and that's where I'm able to, you know, what I can build my business on and feed my family on is that repeat business. And so it's not about, thousands and thousands. I don't need to go everywhere and solicit email addresses. If I say something that in a, in a tweet, in a Facebook post, in a lunch that, that sounds intriguing and somebody says, Hey, I'd like to learn more. Yeah. You know, put your email, email on here. So you'll at least see these doing deals as they come out and we can go from there. I try to be pretty low key about it, to be honest. Yeah. I'd imagine. I mean, you also said early on, if you, if it sounds like you're selling, I'm never looking to convince anybody. I don't want to convince you. <laughs> so, so what do you do? That Do you provide the data and the details and the numbers? And do you give any kind of analysis? Or is it really just you know presenting the deals to people and reserving your comment? Yeah. You know, so like the operator will come to us with their deck, right? Their investor summary deck for this particular property. I have to send it over to my compliance department. They bring out their red pen and cross off everything that I can't talk about. 
as a licensed securities broker. And one of those pages is always the projected return, right? I can't sell off of a projected return being a licensed securities representative. And so it's all about, okay, with the caveat of historical performance is no guarantee of future results. I talk about the historical performance, how, you know, how this team came together, the type of properties that they've got in their portfolio or that they've sold off and their, their historical returns. Here are, here's the deal structure. Here's the preferred returns. So we could say, you know, that's not a guarantee, but there's projecting these, this is, you get paid that before the GPs can get any, you know, a, a, and any returns off of this. And here's how those line up as far as preferred returns versus past performance. Again, trying to keep the expectations low, but still kind of take, you know, a nodding towards, we, we, we are definitely expecting to do quite a bit better than just that preferred return. But you, Mr. or Mrs. Investor, I need you to do your own effort here in thinking through this, talking to your own advisors, you know, let me, let me show you how to analyze this, why I think it's good, but I need you to do some of that work yourself so that you on your own think, get excited about this deal and want to participate in it. That's different from some of the deals that have been presented to me. And maybe it's because I'm being shown deals that are not by a licensed, um, uh, licensed professional. Maybe it's just like someone looking to raise money. Could that be the case? Cause I think I've seen projected returns on something that- sent over to me. Absolutely. That's common practice. That's normal. And I used to work that way. So I started Sugar House in 2017. And for the first three, three and a half years, we were not, we did not go the licensed broker dealer route. We could talk about projected returns. We raised money off of projected returns, but we had to structure ourselves as part of the GP, the the general partnership, so that we could make sure we were, it was in an effort to um, be in compliance with SEC regulations as far as how we got compensated for bringing dollars to the table. Um, a, a capital raiser is not allowed to be paid for for performance unless you are licensed. And so the way you get around that is tell, you know, put your, you know, make an effort to some level to be part of the GP uh, group and have some level of involvement in the day-to-day operations. Um, that's hairy. We all, the whole industry on the capital raising side, we all got letters from the SEC in 2020 saying, Hey, we're aware of you. We're not, we're not, we're not telling you we're taking any action right now, but don't destroy any documents. We just want you to know that we are watching. And that for us was a come to Jesus moment was (laughs) we went right back to our attorneys. Hey, we thought we were buttoned up on this, but how do we make sure we're double buttoned up on this? And the safest way to go about that is the, the, the license broker dealer out. It's a hassle. It's a pain. It's expensive, but it does. I, I think it does at the end of the day, it does lend me some credibility in talking to a potential investor as opposed to just a straight capital raiser who hasn't gone the licensed, the licensing route. We'll be right back. Every other real estate rental property deal analysis spreadsheet is wrong. The only spreadsheet that correctly analyzes your real estate deals taking into account reserves, true cash flow, including depreciation, and your true net equity on a property is the world's greatest real estate deal analysis spreadsheet from the Real Estate Financial Planner. Download a free copy today and finally start analyzing your rental properties correctly. Go to refp.info forward slash free to download it today. So, you know, Rory, I want to ask you this because a lot of the deals that I've heard people are doing that are fantastic deals, frequently they're off market 
you know, they're they're not on LoopNet, they're not on MLS, they're not in the places that people are looking, and those deals are often uh, picked over by the people, and then they end up there. You know, we found some good deals ourselves on MLS, but are these the types of deals that you and your clients, Rory, have are finding because they are on these exclusive lists where people are bringing them these deals for passive investments? Well, I mean, I feel this happens a little bit more in commercial real estate, which is not where I devote much of my attention at all. And that's where really the connections matter a lot more. A lot of things are going to go off of MLS. I've heard that the commercial MLS equivalent is largely where deals go to die um, just because they've been um, passed through these networks in the first place. And then now they're available for the general public to see. Really depends on whether or not the you know, which path that the syndicator is taking with the SEC. If they are going to market it, you know, simplifying SEC rules down more than I should. If you're marketing the property, then it's largely going to be limited to accredited investors. Direct relationships, you don't always need to be an accredited investor. So it, if you want to advertise, you have to have things really buttoned up. Brad, who are the typical customers of yours who are putting money into these deals? Like, What's their profile? Yeah, you know, at the beginning, I would hang out at real estate meetups and, and, and meet the kind of people who like the idea of real estate. Who, and, and these are people who like to loan uh, to, you know, the fix and flippers uh, and maybe wanted to dabble in the commercial stuff. From there, then that's, that's, that was helpful for me. And that helped me kind of get things going. From there, it's got, I've gone another route where I want to go to the rooms where I, become, where I am pretty much the real estate expert in the, in the room looking for folks who like the idea of real estate, but don't want to be hands-on even to the level of evaluating a flip deal. So these are, you know, I, I work with lots of, I actually have like three ER doctors and, and several dentists and endodontists and orthodontists, people who are busy, right? Those are high uh, W-2 income earners. They need some some tax losses or, or, or you know, passive losses on, on other elements. Um, they don't have the time or the interest getting their hands dirty with the day-to-day management or landlording. I like working with small business owners. You know, having spent that my the two thousands with the business that I was involved in, uh, we you know we we got up to about fourteen employees and we were making good money. And that was you know so I I, I but we we went through all the pains of being a company that size because everybody wore every single hat in the company. And I like working with those types of small business owners as well. They're making good money. They're busy. They're wearing tons of different hats. Um, they, they're looking for passive losses, but potential um, tax benefits that come from direct ownership of real estate. They don't really know where to start. They don't know how to identify, let alone a good versus bad operator. They don't even know where to go find the operators. And so that's what I can bring to the table for them. Yeah, before we hit record, you were talking about um, some... And the good and bad operators is probably the wrong term, but people that are doing capital calls now are people that haven't adjusted all that well to this new interest rate environment that we're all in. Talk a little bit about that. Like, what have you discovered from some of the uh, the the deal? Um, I guess would, would they be the deal owners or deal, what, what's their title there? Spons- the sponsors, the operators, the syndicators, the general partnership. <laughs> okay, talk about the differences between the people that have adjusted really well in this interest rate environment that we're in now and, and some of those that maybe are struggling because they have made some different choices. Right. So we've always looked at these as we, we need a, we need an operator group that knows how to manage real estate, handle the, how to handle the, the, the upgrades, you know, execute the business plan as far as turning this property around or stabilizing it, getting it to an optimal occupancy rate, 
making a good decision as far as when to refinance or when to, when to sell. What increased interest rate environment has done is to show us we also need these operators to know really well, to be really good at how to manage the financing and the, and the debt when it's fluctuating like it is currently. With the, the increased cost of capital, you know, many of these loans have deals have variable loans. The interest rate caps have become more expensive. And we've seen some of the operators manage that very well. And one of the things that they bring to the table is deep pockets. So when things become a little expensive, they're not needing to go to the investor and ask them to put up more capital. They're able to fund it themselves. That's huge. Managing it well, having the deep pockets in addition to that has been massive. We have had we, another op, uh, one operator group in particular. They don't have those deep pockets. Young group doesn't know how to manage those those numbers as well. The, the finance component of it, their bank was taking them for a ride, and they were not sure how to handle it. We need we actually ended up bringing another a couple additional GPs to be part of the operation group to help them navigate it so that we could stabilize it a little bit. That those other GPs brought in some capital as well so that we could make sure we didn't have to go out to our investors to ask for additional capital. But that has put in our minds a little bit of a black mark on that original operator group as far as their experience, their their capability to fund any shortfalls. And so going forward, we're gonna, you know, that's that's another element of our evaluation process and our due diligence checklist as we're looking at these operators in do we want to get in, in bed with them or not? Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, if people don't have the deep pockets right now or they're just getting started, uh, they might be in a much different position from an established company and you might think about them differently or the next investment when they're looking for investors. Absolutely. And I would say, you know, none of these that, w- that we're working with are bad operators. The, the underlying asset is still performing well. They're doing a good job there. But it is a good versus really good. <laughs> in our minds, there are, oh, I do know some bad. You know, there are bad ones out there. But, you know, experience matters, deep pockets matters, and, you know, lots of good lessons learned for us over the last eight, nine, ten months or so. And then and then, how how do you guys make your money? Is it you take like a point or something or you take a certain percentage off of whatever um, the investment is? Exactly. So having gone the licensed broker dealer route, we are paid for, for performance. And I disclose that to my my investors. Here's how I get compensated. It is It is a percentage of dollars raised. And so, you know, I, I do need to disclose that, um, but it is very straightforward how we're, how we're compensated. And of course, my obligation as a licensed representative means that I can only show that limited partner or that potential investor deals that are suitable to them, their scenario with their, with a, with a fiduciary responsibility. So is this in their best interest? And then if you put money into the deal yourself, are you allowed to put money in the deal yourself or no? Always. <laughs> I'm allowed, encouraged. I, I do because I, I want to be right alongside the, my investors. So you guys, you'll make money off of you know raising the money, but then if you put money into the deal, then there's another opportunity to make money there as well, right? Exactly. And the identical seat that the limited partners are sitting in, anybody that I brought into the deal, I'm sitting right next to them as far as that, that experience. I got paid up front from having brought dollars in and I got compensated from the general partner's acquisition fee. So there's no cost to the investor. They were their their experience is not going to be any different if they go through me or if they went directly to the operator. As far as returns go, I with me they get a little bit more of a concierge experience and a little more handholding, but their returns are going to be identical because my fees come out of the general partner's acquisition fees, and then from there with my own person, my wife and my money that we put into the deal, we're sitting side by side with our investors. 
Rory, I love how I'm using these fifth grade terms, you know, to try to articulate things. And, and Brad is, comes in there with all the professional stuff and you exactly sure. know who he's talking about. <laughs> yeah. No, it's just great. No, because if you got to put it like, you know, the professional terms, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to dump it down in my head. No, thank you. And I want to, I want to keep it simple. And I find myself, you know, thanks for calling me out on the jargon. I don't mean to use the jargon. You're not using the jargon. You're using the right words. I'm just like, okay, I have to understand this right now. How does this guy make some money? Uh, <laughs> Rory, listen to this podcast right now. Um, you know, some of them are saying like, I don't get this. Some of them are saying, okay, I want in, you know, like I've wanted to do these types of deals or I did these kind of deals with some other people. And maybe this guy sounds like you know, he might be somebody I want to work with. Um, on the law side, since you're the attorney here, like what are some things that people should be thinking about um, if they want to put money into, you know, a syndication deal such as this? We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Alex Brayshaw. Join me as I celebrate the positive impact of business and what drives the people behind it. It's a chance to hear from business leaders, emerging sectors and industry influencers about their unfinished business in just 25 minutes. And the first thing that they want to do is make sure that they can afford it um, and that they're a good fit for it and that they don't need the capital. Maybe that's not a legal thing. But then you do want to take a look and understand what you're signing up for. I mean, I think when somebody's been doing this for a while, um, they'll learn the jargon. They'll get used to um, the patterns and how deals are structured. But understand what it is you're signing up for. It's a passive investment, sure. But you still want to take a little bit of time to educate yourself and know what you're – you know, what you're signing up for. So that way you can also be a good um, passive partner in the operation. Um, and if you're confused, spend the money, talk to an attorney that first time, not necessarily to do a hard and fast negotiation. That's not really what I'm pushing for here, but give an explanation of what um, what the deal looks like. So that way you can be a smarter investor and learn as you go. Um, you know, I'm looking through the different project that Sugar House has done over time, and I see a lot of really you know, large residential and storage units as some of your featured um, projects that you've done. And I can kind of see a certain aesthetic actually in a lot of the the residential, um, large residential properties that you hold. What kind of properties is your company looking for? Get into um, deals. And what trends do you see in the market that have your attention? Great question. We have personally, the, the very first time that I invested in a syndication, I wanted to do this myself. Um, before we started Sugar House, this was I, I this is I want to learn about this industry. So my wife and I invested in the deal about an hour and a half south of Houston, down there on the on the coast, and we learned everything not to do. It, it, it's it went horribly wrong. It was a deep turnaround project, some new construction, um, permitting issues, bad operations, a hurricane, you know, Hurricane Harvey, I think it was that wiped that one out. So we had to deal with the insurance. What what I took away from that is. That's I don't ever want to play in that deep turnaround, deep value add, buy in a war zone type of uh, type of investment again. So our profile is we are buying performing assets. There is if we close on a property on April one, May fifteenth, our investors are getting a distribution check because we're buying a property that is already cash flowing. We're looking to go in there and optimize it. And so it might have been, you know, those those units haven't been updated since they got built in 1985 or 1995. They've still got the four mica countertops. Um, and there's an opportunity to go in there and update those, put in the Amazon lockers, build, you know, put down the dog parks, update the clubhouse. And so now we can bump up those rents by $100 a month, $150 a month. It's not rocket science. It's how how efficient can you be in those operations? Um, how efficient can you be in the up, in the uh, in the rehabs? 
So again, not deep value add. We're, we're also, we're not doing new construction stuff because, you know, that's, that there's an appetite for that, certainly. And, and, and some investors can do really well there. But yeah, you might, you, you put your money in and you don't see anything until, I don't know, a year, year and a half, two years down the road until that thing is built and leased out and sold or, you know, fully you know, operational. Um, and we like the idea of being able to offer our investors immediate cash flow from the get-go. Um, so call it, what, this is so subjective, but call it, you know, a, a B minus class type of a property. These aren't A class. These aren't C minus class. We're not buying in war zones. We're not buying that new stuff that was built two years ago. Um, it's stuff, you know, night, late 1980s, 1990s type of a build that needs some cosmetic lift um, to bring it up to expectations today. Um, and then, yeah, we, you know, we, we've done really well on the self-storage side as well. So that was all about apartments, but same principles apply. Uh, we have op- an operator partner that deals in self-storage. Same kind of idea. We're not looking to, you know, just we're not buying in the war zones. It's more operational efficiencies when you buy from a mom and pop shop. And now, you know, as part of a 120,000 unit portfolio, there's there's tons of efficiencies that can be applied to that new property. Um, and then we brought on a new partner this year that focuses on industrial. Um, and that one we're really excited about because their model is to buy, it's a sale leaseback type of a style, buying a property from the existing tenant. And these tenants have to, the, the threshold is they're doing at least $100 million in, in annual revenue. And so these are really strong, creditworthy tenants. We're simply buying the property from them. They get the capital infusion. And now they're our tenant with a triple net lease, meaning that we have a very predictable, sorry for the jargon, we, we got a very predictable income stream the minute we own that property. So we're excited about that one as well. Okay, so the bottom line, not devalue add, not, not no war zones, efficiency gains to be had from buying a slightly older property. It's, it's good to find what works and then just continue finding more of those that work for you. You know, if you have the recipe that of the property that, you know, is, is something that has worked in the past and is going to continue working, you might as well keep keep on, you know, finding deals of that ilk instead of, you know, sticking your neck out there or something like that, you know, you have no idea if it's the right thing. Yep. Um, so why don't we why don't we wrap things up? We'll get to our final couple of questions, and then we can get uh, all your information, Brad, so people can reach out to you and give them lots of money. Give you lots of money. <laughs> um, Perfect. So, Brad, Brad, we ask these questions of all of our guests who come on the podcast just as a way of wrapping things up and getting to know you a little bit better. First of these questions is, if you could get on stage for half an hour and talk about any subject in the world with zero preparation, what would that be? Ooh, okay. So I love real estate, but my passion always goes to healthy eating, um, and you know, organic food, nutrition, um, a lot of personal love for that. My wife has a chronic disease that we were able to manage with diet and lifestyle. Um, and so I, I could, I could go on a soapbox for way more than half an hour on, on that topic. And in, in, in conjunction with that is preparing for crap happening because crap happens, right? Um, don't wait till you're 65 to enjoy life. You've got to, you know, build your life now and, and, and set it up so in a way that you enjoy it. So I, I would put merge those two together and could go on for hours. Yeah. That's kind of a common theme with guests we've seen on here where people are looking at other elements of their lives as well to be, you know, whole and more enriched instead of just working, 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 and then you retire and die. Exactly. Uh, and you know, diet, exercise, health, that's all, that's all part of it. That's a great topic. Uh, second question we have, tell us something that happened early in your life or career that impacts the way that you're working today. So the experience with my, my, my wife currently who has a, uh, you know, she has rheumatoid arthritis that, that impacts how we manage life and how we think about things, what, you know, her activity level. 
how you know we've got two young kids and so being able to spend time with them now is really important i was actually married before i lost my first wife to cancer when i was 27 years old that immediately stripped away any desire i had that was still there with you know that idea of getting my name in the wall street journal or getting my name in business week I, it, it, you know, my ambitions changed. You know, I, I would say I, it's I'm just, I'm not willing to do the 80 hour weeks anymore. I, I still, you know, I, I work hard and I want to show my boys a good example of working hard, but I'm not going to do it at the sacrifice at the sacrifice of their baseball games or you know going on their school field trips to the zoo that I'm doing this week. Um, that stuff just became uber important. Where before that, I was willing. You know, I'm doing it for the family, right? Put in the 80, 90 hour weeks because I'm doing it for the family. Um, it just completely changed how I see, uh, how I prioritize things and how I see what, what I should be focusing on here in my currently now in my forties. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. I'm it's terrible that a traumatic event, you know, causes that change in your mindset, but it's important that, you know, you're down this path right now with your family that, uh, something's happened in the past. You say it's not going to happen again. Like I'm going to live my life and enjoy my life. And, and that's why you're doing what you're doing today. I think a lot of people, a lot of us is theoretical, you know, like, well, what if this were to happen, you know, but you had it happen to you. So um, kudos to you for getting back on your feet and continuing down the right road. Thank you. It definitely makes it real, right? We yeah. talk about insurance and defense and, you know, set up the defensive stuff before you go on the offensive. It definitely makes it real. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, things you don't think that you need, you know, and suddenly you need them. Right. Finally, tell us something that you're listening to or watching or reading these days, anything in the world. Oh, all right. Um, I, I am a big podcast listener, and so I, you know, I, I, I use Stitcher to, to have the to, to uh, um, from for my regular intake. Um, but I also I, I like historical nonfiction. Um, just just finished a book. Um, oh god. Um, maybe I'll, I'll go I'll go two back, but um, World War Two stuff, early early American history stuff. Um, a, a member of a particular faith. I'm from Utah. You can make a guess. Uh, <laughs> um, the, the historical fiction tied to that or the true history stuff tied to that is, is really interesting. Uh, it's been really fun recently. Here's one I'll share. Um, my my six-year-old is now in his second base season of baseball, and we've gotten into, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago was Jackie Robinson Day. And so we've been talking about Jackie Robinson, and we were able to go to the library and check out a couple books um, there's actually a Jackie Robinson film starring Jackie Robinson. I had no idea that that existed. Um, and so having some of those interesting, real, you know, six-year-old appropriate uh, t- discussions about a topic that can be pretty heavy has been really interesting. And so then, you know, I rented the four-hour Ken Burns version <laughs> of the Jackie Robinson story. Um, so anyway, that stuff, to, to, the, 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 the his- history side, historical fiction, that stuff gets me excited as well. Yeah. It's important to understand the past also, you know, and, and share that with the next generation, especially for topics that are relevant today, which, you know, race relations and baseball and breaking barriers. Absolutely. Yep. And it, it is fun to watch a six-year-old mind process that kind of stuff and, and, and then try to apply it with his with his friends and make sure he's being a, a good kid out there. Yeah. Yeah. We, we have almost four-year-old. She'll be four at this point kind of, uh, you know, uh, when this is released. And, you know, it's an interesting to see how she processes information and spits it back out to you. Yeah, awesome. 
I uh, I was just shocked today that when I dropped her off at daycare, like she was telling me on the drive in that her friend was going to have the same pants as her today because it's like color day. So we wore green pants. And sure enough, she did not just the exact color, but the same pants. I'm like, how did how did you know this? She's like, and the teacher was like, oh, they talked about it yesterday. They both have polka dot green pants. I'm like, how do you know this stuff? Like, this is mind blowing to me. Because <laughs> uh, we remember them when they can't talk and they're just like, you know, bundles of joy. Well, that should be podcast theme, the Jason and Rory show when you guys come up, you show up wearing the same outfits. <laughs> uh, we, I, we haven't done that yet, have we? I don't know. Yet. We recorded another podcast yesterday. Rory had his, his suit jacket on. Like, I, I look all casual here. <laughs> We're, you're actually out working in the field. I'm stuck behind in the office. Yes, yes, I am working in the field. I'm at Granite Vista right now up in Guilford, New Hampshire. Um, Brad, uh, tell everybody where they can reach out to you to learn more about you and your investments and Sugar House and, you know, how they can get involved. Absolutely. The best place to connect with me is at our website, sugarhouseinvestments, plural, sugarhouseinvestments.com. I like hanging out on Twitter as well. Um, There's really great real estate discussions happening there. Um, I'm at Brad Shep on Twitter. But uh, you can always find me through the website, connect with me there, jump on our email list if you want to see our deals. Schedule some time with me to learn more about you know our, our style um, for us to learn more about you. Um, but uh, yeah, appreciate the opportunity. Awesome. Yeah, we'll we'll link all that up in the show notes and and please reach out to to Brad if you have any questions about what you had heard here today. Rory, where could people learn about you? Uh, people could find me through my real estate brokerage, Next Home Title Town. That's nexthometitletown dot com, or my law practice, Urban Village Legal. That's urbanvillagelegal dot com. And if you have questions for me, want to be on the podcast, uh, want me to reach out to Brad on your behalf, or just have comments on what you've heard, please reach out to me, Jason, at nexthometitletown.com. And that's that. That's another episode. So thank you so much for listening. We love reviews, especially if they're five-star reviews. Uh, We read all your comments. uh, So please feel free to interact, and we will be back with you. Um, Brad, it's been a pleasure. I really appreciate all the insight and for making, you know, this space of syndications and raising money and you know, putting money into deals for people that are looking for passive income or to offset their W-2 taxes or whatever reason in the world. Um, it's such a fascinating space. I think that like the more conversations I have about this, the more I finally get it. Every single time I talk about it, I get one more thing, right? So you've you've certainly contributed to my knowledge today. So thank Perfect. you for doing that. Yeah. Mission, mission accomplished. Thanks for mission inviting me, guys. Yes, absolutely. And thank you for listening. Uh, and we'll talk to you next time. This has been the Real Estate Law Podcast. Because real estate is more than just pretty pictures, and law goes well beyond the paperwork and courtroom arguments. We're powered by Next Home Title Town, Greater Boston's progressive real estate brokerage. More at nexthometitletown.com. And Urban Village Legal, Massachusetts Real Estate Council, serving savvy property owners, lenders, and investors. More at urbanvillagelegal.com. Today's conversation was not legal advice, but we hope you found it entertaining and informative. Discover more at realestatelawpodcast.com. Thank you for listening.